Greetings. I'm Josh Tyson, co-author of the first best-selling book about conversational AI, Age of Invisible Machines. The book explores the learnings of 20-year conversational AI veteran and OneReach.ai CEO, Rob Wilson. Each week, Rob and I bring in a guest to continue the conversation we started in the pages of our book. This week on the Invisible Machines podcast, we're talking about the ways that machines can deliver constructive criticism to users without making them feel judged. How universities can teach students to make themselves better in their careers by using generative AI. The relevance of the Buddhist idea of embracing impermanence to companies racing toward hyper-automation and the ways that conversational AI can act as a thin UI layer, obscuring all the messy technology in our lives. Our guest this week is Boston-based entrepreneur and activist Paul English, co-founder of Kayak and Get Human. In the early days of Kayak, the service was often derided by engineers and developers as nothing more than a thin UI layer. Paul had the last laugh. Not only did his creation, a website that curated airline tickets in a more useful manner, sell to Priceline for $1.8 billion in 2012, Kayak's thin UI is emblematic of a concept that is shaping our future with technology. As what you might call a serial entrepreneur, Paul has found success with Boston Venture Studio, Dietz, and Lola, which recently sold to Capital One. His dogged commitment to creating better experiences on both sides of the customer equation is increasingly salient in this new technological era and to kick off season three of Invisible Machines, we're excited to share this frank and fascinating conversation with Paul English. Paul, first, we'd like to congratulate you um, on the Applied Artificial Intelligence Institute. That's big news. And we uh, we saw this quote uh, where you said that expertise in applied AI can be an equalizer and provide real economic opportunity to any student, regardless of background. Uh, and, and that really speaks to a lot of the ideas that Rob and I share in our book and that we've talked about on this podcast, and we would just maybe love it if you could kind of unpack some of your thinking on that for us. Yeah, it's really, you know, AI has been around for 50 years, but the generative AI that's got everyone excited this year, uh, and we've seen the phenomenal growth at OpenAI, ChatGPT, et cetera, it really is changing things for people. And I think now you don't need as much training and as much education to be able to produce really interesting content. So I know that during the day from myself, I have either barred a chat GPT open all day long. I don't use Google that much anymore because I'd rather get one answer from an AI than look at 20 links from Google. And people are using it to generate really good content. I just had, I'm running a little venture studio right now called Boston Venture Studio. We're about to launch a new product. And I saw that one of the big guys in the travel space, it's a travel company, is doing a similar type product. And I sent an email to the team, I linked the article, and I said, let's get together later today to talk about this, how we respond to this, what our thoughts are. And one of the guys just pumped it into ChatGPT, the press release on the other company, and then some information about our product. And it came out with this amazing summary comparing the two products. And we, you know, we're not going to use it as is. We'll edit it because it, it wasn't perfect. But as far as getting you some answers really quickly, it's just shocking how well this stuff works. So I'm hoping that no matter what someone's career is, if they're a marketing assistant in a real estate shop, 
I hope they learn how to produce better ads, more compelling ads, more compelling content. Um, if you are a mortgage broker, I hope it helps you market to find more customers and it will eliminate a lot of paperwork. It's just, it's really going to impact every job. So we're doing it at UMass Boston. There's six schools. We're teaching AI to every single student across the six schools. And we're teaching them for two goals. One, to be a better student, learn more faster, and how to pick up on your weaknesses, get better in areas where you're weak. And then the second thing is how to get better at your career. So for example, in the nursing school, we're teaching um, the nursing students the use of AI. And one of the big questions we have is, when nurses graduate with really good diagnostic tools at their fingertips, how's it going to shake up the medical profession? Like, are doctors going to like this or not like this? Because ChatGPT already, even without a specialized LLM, it's already passing the American Medical Association exam. And now there are specific LLMs for medical. And once that's at the fingertips of all healthcare workers, whether you're a physician's assistant, a nurse practitioner, an RN, it's going to change things. So I'm just really excited. It's a, it's a great time to work in tech, and I'm trying to learn as much as I can every day. So you're, you're, if I got this right, you're sort of one of those people I'd, I'd say is like, um, you, you didn't take the traditional route to success. Um, sort of the, the ingenuity grinded out, you know, sort of path, um, looking for the edge and versus like the standard sort of paint by numbers path. And I wonder if like democratization happens through the fact that when you, that that standard path, the sort of, you know, structured education system is going to be so slow to adopt because it, it wants to control it. It wants to understand it. It wants, it wants there to be, you know, no risk. And so that just lets, you know, opens up opportunities for those taking the less, you know, let's say privileged road, whatever you want to call it to, to do what you've done. Um, in other words, in other words, AI will democratize itself <laughs> um, by becoming the equalizer for those who maybe don't have the traditional path as an option. I don't know. I what think, are your I thoughts? Think, I, I think it's completely. I think it's completely true. I think if you look at software engineering as a discipline, you're not going to need as many people to spend four years getting a computer science degree. I'll give an example. So I co-founded Kayak as CTO back in 2004. And one of the features I'm most proud of, the one of the last things I worked on there, was a feature called Kayak Trips, where you forward your email confirmations from American Airlines and Married Hotel and organize it into a very beautiful itinerary. Kayak has like a 10-person team that works on that. They've been working on it for 10 years now. And they have hundreds, if not thousands, of parsers to parse the email confirmation receipts for all those yes. providers. We just built one for one of my new companies, and we built it in a week. And the yeah. way we're able and, to do it- And it works better, right? <laughs> I'm not sure about better yet. I mean, it asked me in a week, because okay. we're, we're just starting to do benchmarking. But um, LLMs are really, really good at parsing unstructured data and finding 
teasing out, you know, what's the takeoff, what's the landing time. And we get, we've given it badly formatted emails from multiple vendors and it just nails it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said something really interesting that I heard on the, how I built this podcast, you were talking about kayak and I, I believe in the story, you were maybe in a room with some engineers and they told you that the kayak was a joke. And that yeah. it just sits on top, so on top of everyone else's technology, and that it's a thin UI layer, which you know my ears perked right up because that's sort of how we've been viewing a lot of the elements of conversational AI, right? Like it can it can lay over top of all this existing technology, and connect dots where they need to be connected, and then just people can talk to it. it it's a, yeah, it thin simplifies layer on a lot top of the mess. all software. How powerful is that? It, uh, yeah, I think the point was that they said it as if it was a negative thing, and then you responded. And as you should, exactly. that it was a positive thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, ultimately, what matters at the end of the day is the brand that you create and how people talk about your brand and what the user experience is when they each touch point. Your customers don't care if you've wrote it with one program in a week or 10 programs in 10 years. The customer doesn't give a shit. All they care about is, does this look good? Do I like this brand? Do I like this product? Is it simple? Is it clean? And if it is, even if you built it as quote unquote thin layer, it will spread. So uh, I think that there'll be more competition. It's a lot easier to create apps right now using generative AI. It's a lot easier to do visual design and graphic design. And what we're gonna see is a lot more apps, a lot more websites, a lot more products. And I think it's gonna be a pretty exciting time. Yeah. I'm hoping also that AI helps people write software with fewer bugs because I don't think AI is at this like co-pilot for Microsoft and GitHub. It's not at the point yet where it can write software on its own. And maybe I should say, I don't know if I should end that with thank God or not, but, um, <laughs> but we're so using it on my teams and it's making people feel like they're now prolific engineers. I use these yeah. generative tools. Yeah, one total tangent here, but I've noticed a lot of people when they think about AI writing code, they uh, kind of narrow in on like AI actually writing JavaScript or actually writing the lines of code. Um, so, you know, declaring variables, et cetera, creating functions, arguments, blah, blah, blah. But w one way that we use it um, is in place of logic. In other words, not AI to write code, but AI to replace code in the sense that if I want to create a function that you feed it in primary colors and it will feed out the color that would form as a mixture of whatever colors you fed it. So I feed it three colors. It tells me what color they would make. Um, I don't want it to write the JavaScript for that because I, I didn't want to read it, let alone write that function. But but I don't need to because I can just pass that in and then get the color out and I don't need the JavaScript, right? But yet it's still not like the whole solution. It's a small little function that I wrote using generative AI. So in, in some ways you don't need it to write the code in a lot of cases because it can execute as if you had written the code, if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. And, uh, I, we, we have this in our tool where you can write a condition statement, but it looks like if the person is happy, go down this path. If they're sad, go down that path. And I can't help but go like, oh my God, 
like what it would have taken for me to write a JavaScript function that did that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now I can just write that that condition statement. I don't need it to produce JavaScript. Um so I wonder if there's just like this over indexing on producing code in general. Yeah, I don't think you know, programmers shouldn't be credited with the amount of code they write, like lines of code, because right. you might have two engineers and one of them writes 10,000 lines of code one week to produce a image editor, and the other one learns how to do it in 100 lines. You know, which engineer would you prefer? I'd prefer the one who can do it in 100 lines, right. because they're sitting on tech, which hopefully has been stabilized and used by multiple people. And ultimately, if you sit on good tech, your software will have fewer bugs. Not only can you make it quicker because there's less code to write, but you're sitting on products that have already been tested by others. Yeah. Yeah, I think people underestimate the creative thinking um, that developers are capable of doing and and that, that the value isn't in their knowledge of a language or their ability to construct a line of code, but in their ability to think through problems and come up with elegant solutions. Um, yeah, I, I mean, think that's, that's, you can't roll that up to, oh, you know how to code, therefore that's enough. It's, it's, it's not even close. Yeah, I mean, pre-generative AI, I used to challenge people to this thing, we just call it Google game, where you're out at dinner and you, you, if there's some fact you're looking for that something comes up, like what was that movie that Robert Redford was in where there was a big shootout at the end? And, and then we say, okay, who can construct the shortest Google query to find that movie? <laughs> and there's some, it's, it's a little bit like prompt engineering, right? So today yeah, totally. with AI, those tools are available to all of us, but can you be clever and know how to instruct it and craft the right directions to the computer right. so the computer responds to you. Like, can you be concise, efficient, and yet descriptive? Yeah, it's like um, we, we, we're in this mode where we're blaming the system for hallucinating, but maybe there's joint responsibility to like poor prompt engineering, right, leads to hallucinations. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it's not just the system. And so the solution comes from better prompt engineering and a system that's, you know, more aligned versus just putting all the weight on the system. The idea that alignment will come no matter what you prompt engineer, but that point of being really good at leading the machine to the answer you want is, is an art. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's it'll talent. be prompt engineering right now is important because the AI is not perfect yet and it doesn't totally understand context switching. It doesn't, It if it didn't hear your earlier conversation, you might have something in your head that it doesn't have in its head yet. Um, but as AI gets better and better, it's the prompt engineering is gonna become easier and easier, I think, because AI eventually will understand a two-year-old child who doesn't really speak in fully formed sentences. And yeah. I think that when AI gets better at understanding information without context, can guess the context, it'll help people that are not good prompt engineers, but it'll help them still direct it to produce the right output. 
That makes sense. Oh, and you mentioned too a second ago, Paul, that uh, you know the the thin UI layer spreads, and in the case of conversational AI, it, it I can imagine it's spreading pretty quickly. But it also seems like it'll have this quality where it will seep down into the organization, you know, where it might initially be kind of a surface interaction layer between employees and customers. You know, more and more uh, there will be opportunities for machines to talk to other machines, and more and more background tasks can kind of be you know sponged up that way, and then. Yeah, at that point, I suppose the developer's job does become more about that kind of creative problem solving, which I guess prompt engineering is a form of, but where, you, you know, that's that's your true skill set is figuring out how to help the machine get to things faster and better. Yeah. I am very interested. You talk about machine to machine. I am very interested in having each one of us have an agent that can negotiate on our behalf. Probably the simplest example that's often cited, but I've yet to see a solution for this, I'm thinking about building it myself, is if the three of us are trying to meet, the way it works today, even with Calendly and Google Calendar, that you can say propose a time, we still have to look at some options and choose them, and then we have to accept it into our calendar. If we all had agents like AI assistants, we just ta have the three of them talk to each other, they'll pick the time and put it in our calendar, and we've never even looked at the options. Yeah. And I haven't yeah. seen anyone do that yet. I'm thinking about building it myself. Yeah, I think it's like we call it talk to a calendar, but it's talk to, you know, talk to anything, right? Talk talk to a database, talk to a calendar, talk to a camera, talk to an API. Um and uh, you know, personal view is that uh singularity is going to come from all of our things being able to talk to each other. Whether it's our calendar, our lights, our, uh, you know, databases, our CRM systems, um, if we could just put conversational AIs in front of all of these things, to your point, um, anything's possible now on the fly, right? It's it's three of us talking to the same calendar. Um, that makes life so much easier to coordinate than each of us talking to our own individual calendars. Yeah. Um, to your if, point, our calendars are not talking to each other, then how are we coordinating that time? It is magical when different pieces of technology talk to each other on our behalf. Like, I give a really simple example. I drive a Tesla and it reads my calendar. And if my calendar has the address of my appointments, when I get on my Tesla, it, it automatically is aiming towards that direction. It doesn't ask me, do you want to go to 100 Main Street? Or it looks like this is your next appointment, click here to confirm it. It starts the navigation and it works 99% of the time. And I just love it. It's like this magic. Yeah. Yeah, in, in our world, we call it like um, predicting what you're going to do before you're going to do it. And we consider it the ultimate goal in design because you didn't even have to ask. NLU was a fallback to not being able to properly predict what you want. In other words, asking you what you want is only second best to predicting what you want. Um, it's a... Uh, and I, it's like a when it, I like when it makes some decisions on my behalf. We used to talk about analysis paralysis and the paradox of choice when you have too many options I like it when technology 
doesn't just read our mind and talk to our other tech and tries to decide, but it actually acts on it because that means mm-hmm. there's less decisions we have to make. Like Spotify, when you're done with your playlist, it just keeps playing. It doesn't right. ask you, it looks like you like 70s R&B. Do you want to listen to Barry White right now? It just guesses yeah. and keeps playing. And I love yeah. that when tech does that. Yeah, maybe if there's like some concept of the illusion that we prefer agency, you know? I think we prefer agency when we prefer agency, but then for things like buying ink on your printer or choosing the next song, we actually would rather those choices. Like those are just chores. Those are choice chores, right? Yeah. <laughs> and 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 maybe we're doing something else and we don't want to be interrupted with those choices. They're not creative. They're not interesting. Make these choices for us. It kind of comes to an earlier conversation we had um, uh, on the podcast with Gardner where they talk about the percentage of um, future uh, consumers that will be robots and how how over the next five years we're going to see a dramatic increase in a new consumer persona, which is going to be machines and how machines make buying decisions and thinking about how companies will market and 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 need to create um, a customer experience for machines, which is a whole interesting uh, area because because in some ways you live that with kayak, you were the machine that made purchase decisions for people in a sense, or facilitated purchase decisions with other machines. It it sort of is a, a view of that, right? It's, I'm gonna go to one place and it's going to th- have a discussion with a bunch of other machines. Um, I still have agency in that I ultimately get to make the last choice, but it's gonna sort it for me. It's gonna predict you know, what I want. Um, and it's really, in a way you could say it's the, it's the, design model for what's to come. Yeah. I um the CTO, the guy who's currently CTO at Kayak, who um told me when they built a plugin for ChatGPT so you can search for flights inside of ChatGPT, Kayak had given their documented API to OpenAI, but OpenAI's code reverse engineered Kayak's API and discovered some additional parameters. And started doing yeah. things with Kayak that the Kayak engineers are like, how did it know how to do that? So the machines will talk to each other and figure out the most efficient way to communicate. I'm I'm imagining a future cocktail party where the three of us meet and we all have our bot butlers next to us. And the butlers <laughs> are talking in some, you know, first of all, they're talking with radio waves at extremely yeah, high, high frequency. Speed. Yep. <laughs> but then maybe when one of us walks in the room, as a politeness, they speak English to each other to let the dumb oh humans my keep God. up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If 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 we've chosen our our butlers to be polite, yeah, yeah. Um, that's uh. They actually had an interesting conversation about that uh, just yesterday. I think um, we were talking about. Well, I think it started with Google Glass and and how the kind of backlash to that to people like being armed with a camera and all this like information that they could be hiding from you. It's um, coming. But, you know, it's coming. Well, yeah. I mean, well, Rob and I, Rob and I talk a lot about like her, the movie her, where he's got the earbud yeah. that's just like talking to him, piping him information. Like that could be extremely useful. But in a situation like this, yeah, is it bad etiquette for me to have it preloaded with like, 
you know, all the Paul English highlights that I can like <laughs> use to make it seem like I did even more research than I did? Like, is that yeah. deceptive or is, I mean, is it I, okay if we're all doing it? I and mean, the thing is, it's coming. So etiquette's mm-hmm. going to have to evolve because everyone's going to be AI powered and vision powered. The thing that I want is I have a bit of face blindness. If I've met someone 10 years ago or sometimes 10 weeks ago, I see them again and I forget because I just don't have good memory for faces. I'll remember the conversation, but not faces or whatever. I want my sunglasses to tell me to say, oh, this is Josh Tyson. Yeah. yeah. Just to I print that in the lens. has that too. So you might, you know, you guys could buddy up on that venture. Yeah. There it's like really useful to a lot of people. I always have to take these things too far. So now I imagine kind of like the, the VR glasses where you're actually not seeing through the glass to the real world, but you're seeing a projection that your glasses are seeing, and then it can point your head without you moving your head to where you should be looking at all times. So, so you don't have to move your head. You just sit there, and it will move. They will move your environment for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, on I'm where sure you should be looking. I'm sure you've seen the Zoom plugin that makes it look like you're looking at the camera. So if you get bored in a meeting and you're looking at your iPhone. There's a plugin that'll make your eyes look like you're looking at the camera. Oh, no way. That's a thing. Uh, wow. Yeah, so so now I can now I can perceive like I'm paying attention while also looking at something else. Um yeah, and just that... have my glasses on. Yeah, and, and then, and that, then are my glasses. Meeting. Oh, go yeah. ahead, Rob. No, I was just thinking like you always think you want to be present, but what if it what if it's more effective and it's it's taking you all over the all over the place and you're seeing in things in different frequencies, et cetera? You know, it's like Well yeah, in that zoom setting too, like it could be seen as rude to be using that, but it also could be a form of politeness, right? If you're in a Zoom call with a lot of people and one person's talking and you have to look at something, then it's not making other people think that you're getting bored and like they start picking up on that and feeling like they should, you know, they're restless too. So yeah, it's, it's strange yeah. how everything kind of has these two sides. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's like, isn't that the beginning of not being in the Zoom meeting at all? <laughs> <laughs> Just send your avatar, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't even... And, and, and that kind of brings us to like this area of so much of AI and so much of this technology where... You know, we're sort of thinking about how how it affects the immediate familiar zone that we're in. Um, and we don't take it to that next level, which says, like, should we even be in a Zoom meeting? And, like, is that even going to be a thing? Versus AI is going to help us do Zoom meetings to, no, AI is going to make it so Zoom meetings don't make any sense. Um, yeah, and I you're mean, just going to seen... meet with human beings in real life. <laughs> like, Zoom meetings are a bad substitute for three of us being in a room together you've seen the t-shirt that says that could have been an email yeah right <laughs> so but that beyond that you know sometimes people joke in a social circumstance if you see someone you've run into someone at, like i'm out to dinner with one set of friends you run into someone and kind of awkward oh hi haven't seen you in a while and then you kind of talking about you know because you're both going your separate way. i'm going to my dinner table over here you're going to your dinner over here and there's this awkward thing about should you meet up again and sometimes people joke say have your assistant call my assistant, like even if they don't have assistants. <laughs> but the future now is just have your AI talk to my AI. Yes. And they'll decide if it's a meeting, an email, or what. Or maybe the AI yeah. can just work it out on their own. 
Yeah, I, I imagine myself someday saying I don't do Zoom calls because I never know if I'm talking to the actual person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just sit there in a room full of LLMs <laughs> this whole time. That's gonna be that's yeah. gonna be a thing. Yeah, yeah. So we we've been fascinated for a long time by uh, Get Human because the the core problem there is, is sort of one that I, I feel like we've spent a lot of time trying to solve on it from a different angle. But like just this idea that that IVR experiences are so terrible that people should be able to opt out, right? Like there should be a way for them to figure out how to get to a human w when a company has made it really difficult to do that. So I think, you know, from from our side, trying to apply artificial intelligence and those technologies to the problem, it's kind of more about like arming the call center agent, making them more knowledgeable. Yeah, like what if you can't tell then... it's a human anymore? How do you know you yeah, yeah. got to them? And does it even matter then? <laughs> yeah, but what do you think about like what, what what place do services like Get Human have in an AI-enabled future? Like, how how does that change? I mean, Get Human. I'm very proud of it. We've served customer service information to over 200 million people since we created it 10 years ago. Um, it's a small company run by friends of mine. I created it in '06, and a couple of friends of mine took it over. I forget what year. And it's a very high volume website, but in all reality, it's a hack. Like the way Get Human works, you go to Google and you say Verizon customer service and Get Human because we're really good at SEO, we sort of show up and then we'll teach you the trick how to get someone at Verizon. But really, I don't even want to make a phone call. I just right. want my problem dealt with. Like I don't want to wait on phone. And I'm forever frustrated with IVRs and customer service. I, I put out a tweet yesterday that um, I was on a long call with someone at... What company was it now? I don't remember, but I was asking for help with a product and they kept saying something that was illogical and I kept explaining, no, that can't be worked out with it. I'm an engineer and it works like this. And and we were going on and on back and forth. And I wanted at some point to just hit like a certain key sequence, like a star, which means end this call and let me issue a recording that this person's supervisor will listen to so I can give feedback about why I just wasted 20 minutes of the phone with someone who wasn't understanding the question. Yeah, we, we had a, a yeah. chat with uh, Shep Hyken, who's sort of a CX guru, and, and they do a lot of studies. And he, he found that, I forget what the percentage was, but there was a large percentage of people would essentially rather clean the toilet and call in to uh, customer <laughs> service. And, and then the more we got talking about it, we're like, well, you know, the same's probably true for uh, the people that are on the other end of that call like they they might rather clean a toilet than be having to to work you know around these ivr systems and and try and help customers that are already feeling alienated and upset because they kind of fell through that phone yeah tree. we couldn't help but go to like we understand that one side the consumer side wants to talk to a human and then we couldn't help but go but does that human want to talk to them and, yeah and then go well I, I, do i want to spend my day resetting people's passwords um, maybe I do want to talk to people, but not, not about routine, boring stuff. So, so then it kind of took us down this whole rat hole of: Do employees have a right to be happy too? Do they have a right to enjoy their jobs and not talk to people about routine, boring things? Um, or like, do we live in a world where where we over-index on the customer? <laughs> You know, like, like, yeah, what was the joke, Josh? We talked about like this, this idea of the baker and the coffee maker, right? Which is 
kind of made up this scenario where the baker, you know, make, that that's making bread goes over to get coffee and always complains to the coffee maker about how, you know, badly his coffee sucks and how bad his service is. And then he comes over and gets bread and always complains about how bad the bread maker is at making bread and, and his how much his service sucks. And, and you're like, is that the world we want to live in or do we want to live in the world where both of them have an obligation to be polite to each other? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think where we landed too is that it, it all seems tied to this, what's starting to feel antiquated, at least to me, this idea that the customer is always right. Like so much of customer service is built up around that paradigm and it seems to have led us to a place where a lot of customers feel entitled. Um, you know, yeah. they are entitled to certain things, but they're up against also like, these systems that are designed to keep them at bay and then these people that don't really want to talk to them like that that probably could all be remedied in certain ways by by a lot of this technology that we're seeing right now if it's if it's applied properly at each of my companies i used to always say team first customer second profit third and i really believe that. that if you're a good recruiter you know and you hire magical people magical people make magical products and magical products make magical profits but I never let asshole customers push around my employees, and I encouraged my customer service people to fire fire customers who are assholes, Ugh. because I wanted no. my customer service people to like like their job. And if someone's just being abusive because there's some lonely person in their mother's basement and they're like yelling behind a screen at some poor customer service person, I don't want that person as my customer. Sounds like you. I mean, we're big fans of this idea that customers should have reputation scores as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like would it, wouldn't it be great if we could just like fly on an airline where the customers all have to have like an Uber score of 4.6 and higher or higher? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's a Black Mirror episode about that where every interaction people will rate you. And then there's oh, yeah, also... What's his name? Um, hedge fund manager. He has a system called Dots. Is it Bridgewater? Where employees carry around iPads. They rate each other after each presentation oh, yeah. in real time. I'm like, oh, Ray Dalio. It's called Principles. Right, I, right. I, I definitely like rating. I actually have, um, again, I'm running this little venture studio. We have half a dozen apps under development. One of them is a dating app. And we have a patent pending on after a date, both people rate the other one. And the specifics of how we do it and why we do it and what rating looks like, we're not going to put a number up on your profile, but after you've been on five dates, we're going to say, do you want to see what the last five women you went out with said about you? It'll be anonymized, but we're the only dating app, I think, that's going to be doing this closed loop um, dating that the goal is to make people better daters, but also make them better human beings, you know, like yes. be nice to waiters. Show up on time. Yes. Don't talk about your ex-wife the whole time. Don't look at your phone the whole time. So we're going to train people, and we're doing that through closed-loop feedback. That's yeah, amazing. I, 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 yeah, I love that idea. I think, I think it's, I think customers have a responsibility to, to make employees' lives better. I don't think it's just their bosses, um, and and the company's responsibility. And I, I love this idea of a score. And I think I saw that Black Mirror episode and I feel like whoever wrote it, I think there's people that game the system by being rude. I think they get perks by being aggressive. And I feel like if you don't like, 
being rated, it's because you're afraid of what your rating will be. And I think whoever wrote that episode <laughs> is probably one of those complainers, you know, that is like, no, this works for me. The system works for me. I complain and I get upgraded in my room. And, and people like me who never complain, you know, get the short end of the stick. And so, I mean, yeah, of course, of course they want it that way. You're reminding me at my last company, we had customer service people and we were putting in a system to let the customers rate the customer service people. And I felt bad about it because they're like, you know, what if someone's a jerk and they rate me poorly? So I said, well, I'll get rated as well. So I tried to think what job could I get where I got rated? So I became an Uber driver. And I will say I'm very proud of my rating. It's 4.96. And I try to engage every customer. Oh. And I, I have a notebook that I write down one sentence for every customer. I'm, I always think about who didn't give me a five rating. And I just have to tell you this one story. I picked up these two guys. They told me very proudly that they're from Saudi. And I said, how do you like Boston? I'm glad you're visiting us. And they said, it's great, except all the women are bitches. And I said, all the women? And they go, yeah. I go, man, if it's all the women, like they might not be the problem. I don't right. think those guys <laughs> gave me five stars. Yeah, and you could you could argue that, that if they had a, you know, that that it's just a misuse of the system because if they had a poor rating, they shouldn't be allowed to rate you. Yeah. And if these guys right. are on my dating app and they're jerks to women, they're going to be lifetime, they they're going to be lifetime banned off my dating app. Right. They shouldn't be allowed to rate. They should just, you know, ratings, ratings, these ratings shouldn't be blunt force. They should be, they should be sophisticated. Right. Yeah. So they need to account for that, that exact scenario you were in right there where, where they, they were in the wrong. And, and it's clear not by that, by analyzing that exact situation, but by analyzing both of your behaviors more broadly and understanding that generally speaking, you know, your, your behavior probably is dictated more generally than in that specific event. And theirs is probably dictated, um, than analyzing that event. And, and so they shouldn't have been able to rate. You should have been able to rate. Yeah. Um, it's cool too, but I yeah. think in terms of like coaching people towards better behavior, like you're talking about uh, with this dating app, we've had enough conversations, I think, on this podcast about anthropomorphization, but I feel comfortable like suggesting that like, I think in terms of telling people kind of how to behave better, I think they take that criticism better from machines perhaps than from people if it's designed properly because there's a layer of judgment that's kind of removed from a person. You know, if a person's telling you you're a bad dater, you're probably going to get that's fairly defensive. That's super interesting. That's yeah, but super if interesting. A, if it's a system like showing you some data, yeah. like here, here's like five things these all these women all said the same thing about you. Like it's going to yeah, make it AI hard for you to continue dating. Like, yeah, here, yeah, here a, are some a, things a, you could do to fix this. Yeah, AI is the arbiter of uh -huh. whether who was right or wrong. That is super interesting. Now you have now you have that interaction. Um, a transcript of that interaction you had in the car, and then AI arbitrates it and <laughs> I believe yeah, they try to AI give you a coaches, bad rating and they're like, not allowed. Yeah. I I think it would be interesting to have an AI coach people on their email etiquette as an example. Like I live on email. I get about three hundred emails a day. I send about one fifty. Um wow. and I have my whole systems for how I process it. But some people are just like very bad at email and they're very like rude. And sometimes it's a cultural thing that some cultures are more direct than other cultures and so Someone might say something which is normal for their culture, but comes across really cold to another culture. And it would be interesting if all of us had an AI email coach that could say, 
I know what you were probably trying to do with this email, but you probably pissed them off. And here's yeah. another way you could have said it. Yeah. I like the idea of just, you know what? Don't even bother giving me the feedback. Just rephrase it properly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just I, like, I just want to be blunt with my AI. I don't even want to have to be polite. Let it handle the, 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 the intricacies of how to, how to deliver it. <laughs> I mean, there's going to be so much technology. We're going to become technology enhanced humans. We have technology uh, in our clothing and our watches and our um, eyeglasses and everything else. Imagine a dating future where people like, you can call the app, get naked, where you basically go on a date, you shed all your electronics, and now you're two wow. humans who have to actually talk to each other. Yeah, Some yeah, real vulnerability you more, right there. <laughs> you feel n more naked without your technology than without your clothes. Yeah. <laughs> I, saw a, I, I saw a TED Talk about privacy where, I forget the talk now, but he basically said to everyone in the audience, I went to the TED conference twice in California, and he said, hand your phone to the person on your right. And so everyone did, and everyone, everyone felt nervous. Ugh, you wow. Know? It was very <laughs> funny. Like how much our phone owns us as much as we own our phones. Yeah, without a passcode, probably no one would have done it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. It's our brains. It's like, it's like, giving people access to what we think yeah that's yeah. a that is a scary thought what you you made me think of something funny too a second ago rob like you're you're if you're if you're blunt with your llm excuse me your llm that's writing emails for you and then someone on the other end is is being blunt with their llm too then we now just have machines exchanging pleasantries uh for no real reason right <laughs> like to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess to feed us our own pleasantries that we didn't feel like providing to the person at the other end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like every every angle of of communication is about to be impacted in some way. Yeah, I, I mean, a, a lot of us think about this as like, you know, we talk about this all the time at One Reach is like the, you know, oh, the AI can send the email for you. It can word it. You don't even need to open an email client or read an inbox anymore check like that's i have that experience today already but the next level is i don't even need to know how it contacts the people that i want to contact like who cares email text message whatsapp i don't really care just just let josh know i'll be late yeah but then there's probably also use cases i mean it seems like paul if you're you said you read 150 emails a day um Maybe I, I'm guessing maybe for you, emails are part of a way that you process your thinking. We we had a conversation with Rebecca Evanhoe about uh, she's a conversational designer. We were talking about like if you had an LLM that was trained on your content, would you use it to help you write? And she was like, well, no, like writing is how I process my thinking. Like you're not going to get the yeah. pen out of my hand. I think so I'm the same way. Is there an way. element like that with the emails too? I think I'm the same way. Yeah, I read about 300 and said about 150. When I was in college, I used to take notes during the lectures. And then as I walked out of the classroom, I explicitly crumpled up the notes and threw it in the trash can. And what I was doing by doing that is saying, I never really, it's very rare that I read my notes, but writing it helps me. So the teacher mm -hmm. would say one thing, I would think about what he or she said, and I'd write down what I learned from that paragraph they just submitted. And the fact of writing to me is learning to me, like putting words to it. They say that um, 
I don't know how much time we have, but if we had time, I would ask each one of you to tell me your first memory. And they say that you can't really have a memory until you have language, that language is the things that bonds memory. And yeah. um, I'm just sort of fascinated by that concept. Yeah, that is interesting. I think my first memory is being under a kitchen table and seeing someone's, like a woman's legs moving around the kitchen. I don't necessarily know who's, if they're my mom's or someone else. Yeah, that's amazing. But I wonder how much of that memory is bound up in like me being able to describe it with language. Yeah, I wonder if it's a read or write. Like, in other words, the memory's there, but we can't describe the memory, therefore it's irrelevant. Or if it's a, if it's that, that it, or if it's a write problem. In other words, the memory's not there. I would think it's a read problem. Like, yeah, the memory's so there, too. but we can't describe it. Yeah. yeah, I think so too. What I'm really fascinated with right now is this idea that um, our brains always re. We don't read. We read and write always. So we're always, anytime we recall a memory, we're always rewriting that memory, which is, you know, responsible for changes in memories over time. The more we recall them, the more we change them in our minds and change the way we see them. And um, thinking about that in AI, going, you know, this concept that, you know, there is a read write on. Because if we get into storing unstructured data and retrieving unstructured data, do we always rewrite it? Um, you know, enhancing the 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 memory on the machine with the even just simply the fact that this person read this, and now that gets written as a part of the memory. So, so if I say, you know, what's Josh's favorite color? I pull the mem I pull the data out orange is his favorite color it gets rewritten back orange is josh's favorite color and rob recently asked this and that that's the new memory and then when you know frank goes in to say what's josh's favorite color it's orange rob just asked me and then that gets rewritten and like like this kind of idea that that data gets stored in a iterative like constantly updated way yeah it's i mean if, fascinating. If, if language is the access key we have to ask how it works on multilingual people if someone grows up with a german mother and a american father at what point during a certain childhood event something very memorable like they fell off a swing and scraped their knee were they with their dad when that happened to their mom because they're trying to retrieve that memory are they look are they searching in german or in english Oh, uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And do you rewrite it in the, a different language? Do you rewrite it? You retrieve it in German and if someone retrieved it in English, you retrieve the German version and then do you rewrite it in English? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the problem with with rewriting memory is it, it has these positives in that um, we use it to potentially, um, you know, it, it helps us through trauma, right? We, we can recover from trauma through rewriting, but the question is, do mach machines have, don't have trauma? So is this even necessary or there's some sort of, you know, there's some sort of value in the way we do, we manage knowledge and information in terms of this retrieval technique, but then there's also some side effect that may not be relevant to machines, which is 
machines don't have trauma, we don't necessarily need to rewrite everything. Um, but it's it's an area we're exploring right now because that idea of contextualizing data and somebody else asking what Josh's favorite color is, knowing that I just recently asked and was told orange, could be relevant because they're buying him a birthday present and they're trying to figure out what color shirt to get him. And now they know I just asked. And so now they're like, okay, I'll get a different color. Rob, I'm wearing orange socks right now, by the way. Uh, so there you go. I don't know how you figured that out. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I have those glasses, you know, that. Oh, that's... right. Yeah. <laughs> Your earpiece told you how quaint. <laughs> yeah. My Google uh, glasses. <laughs> Paul, maybe we could ask you kind of like a philosophical philosophical question. Um, so I, I think it was, you know, on that interview with Guy Raz, I heard you talking about the beauty in acknowledging impermanence um, and how that lets you live in the present moment, which, you know, is a very useful bit of, I think, like Buddhist thinking. But we found that a lot of times when we're talking to companies who are trying to figure out how to integrate conversational AI the, the sticking point becomes that like everything that you think your company is, is, is going to change and it's going to continue changing and changing and changing. And if you really want to embrace this technology, you, you can't fight that. So is, do you think there's a way to help teach companies to become almost more Buddhist in their thinking? I mean, I, I think a lot of it maybe has to do with the success metrics that are attached to like, you know, succeeding as a, as a business. But I wonder if there, if there's an inroad there or a pathway. Say more about the question. Tell me, give me a little bit more on that. Oh, sure. Well, it's this idea that if you, if you want, if you want to succeed with this next, this coming wave of technology, you, you have to surrender in a sense. You, you can't be the same company you were like you can, you can start small and, and make changes, but ultimately all your systems are going to have to change and eventually they'll probably dissolve away. Um, and you know, that, that journey might be a lot quicker than you, than you might have once thought in terms of like how companies have been interacting with technology. Yeah, that's, so that's really, yeah, that's really just this that's heavy really resistance. resistance. Yeah, yeah, humans are not very good at change. Um, they're better than a lot of people, a lot of animals in the animal kingdom, but humans resist change. In Buddhism, we say that suffering is universal, and the definition of suffering is an attachment to a world that doesn't exist anymore. So something happens to you, and it doesn't map doesn't meet your map of the way the world should be. And so you get, get a lot of anxiety about it. And one of, the, one of the techniques we learn in Buddhism to get rid of suffering and to accept change is just radical acceptance. If you can, the, like this is serenity prayer, which says, may God give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And so if I pair that serenity prayer with what I learned in Buddhism classes, which I take uh, on Thursday nights, it basically tells me things are going to change. Like one of my teachers that I like is a Buddhist named Pema Chodron, and she talks about being in the middle of the river and the river's white water rushing by you and there's branches and everything else flying by you. And you have to just like accept the change around you. And as a company with all this technology, your company may have built one product, like Kai built this trips product with hundreds or maybe thousands of scrapers, and now LLMs are here. Maybe Kai should abandon what it's been doing for the last 10 years and say, there's a better way to do this. So I do think there's something that, in like in the startup world, the reason startups are usually the innovators 
is the incumbents are successful because they thought a certain way, but when the rules change, they're still holding on. They have attachment to the way things used to be. They have attachment to the way they built things. And sometimes it takes fresh eyes and a young company to say, things are swirling around us, and here's how we're going to do something based on the world as it is today, not the world as it was yesterday. That's interesting. I I, I would classify you as a highly creative person. Um, and um, I would say that that a lot of entrepreneurs are highly creative um, and that and that there's some point in a company where they go from explore to exploit. There's that like creativity component. And then it, it's it's sort of like a movie. You have the people who make the movie and then the people who promote and distribute the movie and and try to monetize it and scale you know scale the amount of money you can make and exploit that that creation. Um, and and I think in in entrepreneurial settings, it's often talked about as the you know the folks that create the you know the founders aren't always the ones that should stick around to scale it. They're you know different types of people. Um, and I wonder if the inverse is true. Also, if you're in a business now that you're in exploit mode and you're wired for exploiting, that's your thing. And now you have to suddenly shift into creator mode and like can you like are it's just like are the wrong people running these companies like can they can they adapt i mean one of the things when i i sold one of my companies to intuit and then i served as vp technology there and one of the things i did for the company was i trained executives how to recruit and how to hire it was a passion of mine and one of the my lessons was on something called reverse indoctrination which is when you hire someone hopefully you hired them for a reason that there's something about their past that you found very attractive. But before you put them through your training courses and make them drink the Kool-Aid and do groupthink like everyone else, you have this precious moment in time where you can learn from them before you train them to think like you. And so I called it reverse indoctrination when I said, when we have new employees, have them give brown bag lunches and lectures about how things should be done. Because... It's companies often become too inward focused and they just talk to each other. It's like this intellectual masturbation where it's not the real world. And when you recruit, you're bringing someone in from the real world and you should learn from that person. Yeah, that makes sense. Like they have that external perspective. You have that internal perspective. Yeah. Far more complicated. The internal perspective is far more complex. The external ones typically sim simpler, and and if a business is there to serve externally, then you have to know how they see you. Yeah. Um. And yeah, your your point makes sense. Is like they have this valuable perspective that you're about to ruin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But even having that foresight requires, I guess what we were talking about earlier, that people are uncomfortable and I, I think companies are maybe even more uncomfortable with in certain ways, which is vulnerability because you're, you're inviting the judgment of weakness, right? When, when in fact, like being vulnerable is actually a, a sign of strength in, in a lot of cases. Yeah, I, mean, so it's, I, I always say that people follow confidence, but they're loyal to vulnerability. Uh, yeah. And I think that's yeah, true. I, I, 
Yeah, it's that's a that's a tough one because it's like is vulnerability confidence, <laughs> you know, it's oh, that yeah. it's that. Uh, do people have a false sense of what confidence is? Like imposter syndrome equals confidence in a lot of people's minds, whereas vulnerability is actually what confidence is. I um, mean, that's just a whole nother episode, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Paul, we we uh, appreciate you taking the time with us today. Yeah, uh, it's, it's been really interesting to talk through a lot of your your history and just your your thinking on the space right now. I mean, everything's changing rapidly, and uh, we're all kind of caught up in that white water. So now we just have yep. to decide how to let go, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Earth is this little rock that's traveling around the sun at sixty-seven thousand miles an hour. Things that you know. We can't control the universe. We can't control everything. So make a difference, like make a dent in your part of the world. It's the impermanence mm-hmm. thing, you know? We mm-hmm. can't control everything. Yeah. 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 And and now I guess we do kind of have access to this super tool that really could equalize things a bit, right? Like people in struggling parts of the world can now have access to information and technology that gives them agency. Uh so I guess it's important to keep our sights on that as well. But. Well, great chat, guys. And, All uh, right, thanks have, a lot. Have a great weekend. Yeah. All right, thanks very much. All right. Well, thanks again for joining this ongoing conversation about conversational AI. Be sure to subscribe to Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app. You can also watch these conversations on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. This podcast is produced for UX Magazine in partnership with OneReach.ai. Over the past five years, our team of nearly 200 engineers, scientists, experienced designers, anthropologists, and linguists have been developing Generative Studio X, an award-winning platform that has the lone distinction of being named a leader by every major analyst group. GSX is a complete environment for hosting, creating, analyzing, and scaling your own digital teammates called Intelligent Digital Workers. For an interactive demo of IDWs in action and to learn more about the GSX platform, head to OneReach.ai. This podcast would not be possible without the hard work and dedication of executive producer Elias Parker and producer Kate Timchenko. Our video and audio editor is Michael Litvinov, and we rely on support from the marketing team at OneReach.ai, including Allison Harshberger, Anastasia Nechtalio, and Vera Prokodko. Thanks again, and we look forward to connecting with you next week, right here on Invisible Machines. <laughs>